podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger Podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bécher, meaning digger. Hi everybody, welcome along to another edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast. I'm James, as always, taking you through the podcast today and we've got a double header for you. It's a big one today, two terrific guests, two terrific interviews. If you've got a spare hour of your time, and let's face it, many of us have at the moment, I may be biased, but listen to this Cricket Badger Podcast. It's two terrific chats with two tremendous guests. My thanks, as always, to tvsportsblog.com. Coming up in the second half of the podcast... I've got the former Lancashire Derbyshire wicketkeeper batsman Luke Sutton. He's talking about his book, Back From The Edge, chronicling his struggles with addiction. Really frank, honest, open interview with Luke Sutton. And obviously at times like this, mental health, something we should all be aware of, all be sympathetic to. And I think you'll find the interview with Luke really interesting, genuinely honest, and something that I recommend you don't miss. First of all, though, on the Cricket Badger podcast this week, I'm going to be joined by Fabian Cowdery, one half of the Cowdery twins. Julius, his brother, is a musician, a singer-songwriter. Fabian obviously played for Kent and now runs Cow Corner Events, although, like most of us, hasn't got quite so much to do just at the moment. And Julius has suffered from COVID-19. When he recovered, he raised himself out of his bed, said to his twin brother, let's write a song for charity, let's raise some money for the NHS charities. And they've penned Frontline really good tune actually since i did the podcast interview with fabian i've actually been walking around my flat whistling it that must be a good sign surely it's raising money for a terrific cause so my first guest on the show fabian cowdery and remember stay tuned luke sutton coming up soon it's that badger style he's been on the podcast before on the cricket badger podcast but we welcome back fabian cowdery fabian how are you yeah, very well, thank you. Yourself? I'm not too bad, thank you. Like your brother, Julius, I think I've had COVID-19 because I've been reading in the one of the articles on him that he uh, had a bit of a, a suffering of it. Yeah, look, he, he went through two weeks of absolute chaos at home here and, of course, the rest of the family isolated and took good care of him within arm's length, obviously, or two metres or whatever the climate was. It was a really tough period. I think he explained it in, in, in the press as, as being horrific um, and the worst flu he's ever experienced. He was very lucky not to be uh, hospitalised in the end. But fortunately, he came out the other side and, and for that, we're very lucky as a family. I think the thing that resonated most, because uh, I, I had a very similar kind of episode with it, I was very lucky really that it, it didn't get didn't get dramatically worse, but it's the fear of the unknown because you know what a flu is like, you know you're going to get better in a, kind of four or five days, but with that, you're never quite sure that you, you passed it and it's a quite a persistent little sort of a virus isn't it kind of it stays there and yeah. keeps going at you yeah it's, it's it's not ideal is it and um of course without any proven vaccine at the moment sort of wondering whether things are going to deteriorate particularly when you can see someone that close to you going through something so difficult and sort of bed bound and unable to do anything throughout the day as i said we, we've been very lucky uh, lots of other families haven't been so fortunate and i suppose through that period we found some motivation to, to write a song so we're hoping that uh through the experiences that we've had as a family we can really appeal to the nhs frontline and say our bit say thank you i mean you're known for obviously playing cricket from 
coming from a, a very famous cricketing family. You've got your events business as well going on now. But Julius is, is the musician in the family, isn't he? I, I saw him on The Voice, actually. Nobody turned around for him, which I thought was very unfortunate. But, but you've combined forces to write Frontline. All the proceeds of this go to the NHS charities. Yeah, as I said, it came from the experiences that we had as a family and particularly what he went through. Following his illness, he came into the living room and I was sitting there and he said, look, I feel like we really need to write a song. We were sort of midway through the Sky News and of course some of the highlights and some of the, the pictures that we see through through all of the news stations at the moment are, are horrific, especially what the frontline are experiencing. Lots of carers have already been taken victim to COVID-19 themselves. And we wanted to do something special where we could get behind the frontline and say thank you for your bravery and for your courage and write something really touching that hopefully people can resonate with around the country and, and if we can get it around the world, around the world too. What was your input into it? Did What part of it did you write? What part of the process did you perform? Normally when we combine on a song, I'm more of the lyricist and he takes care of the melody. But with this one, it took about 30 minutes and we combined on both. I've spoken to a few songwriters and they say the best tracks that they feel they've written happen really quickly. There's a real inspiration there behind something and it takes 20, 30 minutes to write the track. But it was exactly the same for this one. We knew what we were going to write about. We were both touched very much by the situation so the world finds itself in. And it, it just happened all very quickly. Within 10 days, the song was on Spotify and iTunes. So we're just hoping that we can keep the momentum up. I said to you when we were setting up this interview, my daughter's a nurse. So she's a student nurse in a hospital in Huddersfield. And so I think everybody at the moment is affected by COVID-19, knows somebody that is doing something fantastic out there that you can be very proud of. It's something that's just affecting the, the entire globe, isn't it? 100%. I think, of course, our way of, of giving back, if you like, was to write this song because that's the way that we knew better in order to do so sort of as a partnership as twins by the same token within the cricketing vicinity I know the club cricketers are rallying around and trying to raise some money and and, and lots of communities are coming together and, and doing right by their communities as well so it's great to see the unity that COVID-19 has, has brought. Obviously, whether you've gone through it or you have a family member who've gone through it themselves, uh, you know, everyone's having to isolate. People have taken some heavy financial cuts. There's been matrimonial issues. There's, there's obviously going to be a, a rise in, in, in depression and, and from the personal effects of contracting the illness as well. So, it, look, it's going to be a difficult period. But everyone's rallying around it and doing their bit. And in fighter's style, I know that we'll, we'll come out the back end of this. We just have to sit tight and ride the wave. Which is the oldest of the two of you, Julius and yourself? Yeah, such a good question, because that's one answer that I have never been given, which is absolutely bizarre. We were, you know, obviously we're twins, um, but mum and dad have never never really known much about it, apparently. They said it was a very rushed birth, uh, quite a traumatic event. Even at 27 now, we still don't know the answer to it. <laughs> so that's safe for lots of arguments when we were young. But you know what, I don't really mind anymore. It would have been great to know if at 13, 14, where I could have really had a go at him, but now it doesn't really matter. Are you on the same wavelength? You hit, you see stories of twins who feel each other's pains and are on, on the same wavelength when it comes to thought processes. Do, if you are, does that help in a, in a songwriting capacity? I think so. Um, look, Jules and I, like many other twins, have got a great connection. Uh, we're best friends to start with. When it comes to songwriting, I think we've got a real engagement there with each other, an understanding of what we're trying to do. Um, we've written a couple of tracks now that are on 
Spotify and iTunes. Um, he's written with a lot of other people. I've written with a couple of other people as well. But when we come together, particularly when it's something that one of us has been through, we've both been through, it's amazing how quickly we can put a melody out there. It was always a passion of ours growing up. There's a picture actually of Julius and I at sort of age six and seven where he was sitting on the piano and I looked sort of like a Bernie talking like character standing behind him with my hands behind my back. Uh, and, you know, some things never change. And it, it was a real escape for me during my cricket career to return home and write some music with him. And unfortunately, in the, in the last couple of weeks, we found that real momentum and desire to do so, just considering we're in isolation all the time. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a real passion in the family. Well, let's hear a little bit of a snippet then, Frontline by Julius Cowdery. I feel lost in a world that felt so easy yesterday Whilst the cost of the people who we love taken away So many lives and another dies Tears fill our eyes, the clouds they turn to grey But we will fight through Frontline, we are nothing without you You give your lives for us, thank you We'll hold our heads up high Cause love will get us by, thank you I'll just fade that down now because we're going to play the uh, the song a little bit more of the song at the end of our interview, Fabian. But Ju- Julius is obviously a very talented man, isn't he? I mean, he's been made in Chelsea. I've never watched Made in Chelsea, so I, I only know that from uh, reading up about him. But w- was he a, a, a lad uh, when you were young that he played cricket too? Was that ever part of it, or was he always on the piano and guitar and doing music stuff? No, he's a, he's a bit of a multi-talented soul. Is Julius? He really had an appetite for the leg side and giving it a hoik over Cal Corner. <laughs> but um, I was sort of more of the sort of elegant touch player, if you like, growing up. But he always played cricket for, for fun. He never really wanted to explore it on a more serious level and always warmed to, to the mic a little bit more than sort of needing 12 to win in the last over and your whole team depending on you. That was never his type of pressure. But yeah, as I said, a very talented guy. Made in Chelsea, you touched on, isn't, isn't for everyone, but it was a great chance for him to get his name out there in front of a, in front of a wider audience. And I think it in many ways helped him with his music. Um, he hasn't been on that for two or three years now, I think, and he's really focusing on his singer-songwriting. As I said, he's a talented guy and, and I, wish you, I wish him the best and hopefully this frontline song can, in, in a selfish way as a twin brother looking at it, can help elevate his career as well and people will begin to hear his voice a little bit more. Everybody's affected by COVID-19, whoever you are, whether you're rich or poor, wherever you're living in the world, everybody's affected by it. It's affecting our, our lines of work as well. I mean, Julius is a, as a singer-songwriter, a performer. There's no chance of doing that at the moment. Yourself with your events business, and I know you do some commentary too. Mm. All of that's dried up as well, hasn't it? It's, it's basically <clears throat> a, a waiting game now, hoping that somebody comes up with something that is a cure, a vaccine, or something that allows us to get back to some kind of degree of normality. Yeah, and Social distancing, of course, will continue for for longer than than I think we first expected as we wait for that vaccine. But I think this period is very much an attitude thing for for people like myself who who literally can't run an event. I'm I'm personally looking at a virtual platform like lots of us are. Go online and stream um, our material and content to our to our relative networks and, and push things out. So that's definitely something that I'm working on now. And we're, we're lining up a big event on on the sixth of May with a big rugby player. So it's just it's just about staying uh, patient, understanding the situation, and, and really hoping that at some point this will all come to an end. But it, it doesn't look like it's it's slowing down at the moment. We just have to keep following the rules and and hope that at some point we can all sort of return to normality. And that's that's the trouble with this, isn't it? Because even if 
within say six weeks or two months whenever it's going to be and they say right lockdown's finished you can you can start to come out of your houses and be a, a, a little bit more normal the virus is still there isn't it so we're all going to have to be very careful and social distancing is going to continue for quite some time absolutely <laughs> from an events point of view as well the social distancing just uh doesn't really doesn't really help at all but in i think a lot of the attitude for, for business when we return to some form of normality is going to be virtual but as, as i said i think it's just going to be a patience game and lots of people and their approach is probably going to change forever considering we're all trying to work out a new world of uh using online as a, as a way of as a way of getting by but you know it's a time to be creative and uh from a sporting point of view there's no cricket commentary going on at the moment it seems like lots of the sports clubs are rallying around each other and trying to keep their their relative fan bases interested interestingly essex county cricket club covered frontline by julius and myself and put that all over their Twitter feeds. I got a call from Ryan Tendiscarta who said, we really want to engage the Essex community and raise money for our Essex local NHS. So can we please have the backing track and we'll send it around the lads and we'll do a, we'll do a Zoom call and, and we'll sing our version of uh, Frontline. I've got to be honest, they weren't the most talented bunch of singers, <laughs> um, but it was incredible to see Alistair Cook smashing the second verse. And you know what, people are really getting around it and it's good fun and, and it's a chance to give back a bit as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fantastic cause and the, the guys that are putting them themselves literally on that front line the doctors the nurses and it doesn't stop there either it's the carers it's the people in the shops it's it's every single person that's out there putting themselves at risk effectively so that we can try and get some kind of normality and people can be looked after if they if they contract it yeah definitely and also everyone abiding by the rules i think the most frustrating thing for everyone was when they went on social media on twitter and there were posts from the public of them on their daily walk and there were hundreds of people sunbathing or having a barbecue on the beach in Brighton or you know that, that sort of thing is is you know borderline unforgivable when everyone's doing their bit and it is such a contagious illness but I feel since the Prime Minister had his symptoms and spent his time in hospital that things begin to sort of turn a tide a little bit and people are taking it more seriously but it's within everyone's best interest to stay at home right now so uh, you know if you can find a way of whether it's writing a song in mine or my brother's case or, or finding something else learn the guitar learn the piano whatever it might be find a way of staying busy mentally um, then I'm, I'm sure that you'll come out the back end of it positively it's just a very tricky period at the moment. That's exactly why I'm doing podcast Fabian um, you are effectively yeah. my therapy um, today because I'm talking to you and rather than sitting here just sitting on the sofa watching Netflix Netflix, which is a, a tendency for most people at the moment. I'm trying to keep myself, uh, give myself some structure with the podcast. With, with Cow Corner Events, which is obviously your, your yeah. business, had, had some really big names, haven't you, over the last uh, year or so. I saw your tweet the other day where you got the, the empty room with David Gower's picture up saying, we're missing you, our public out there, because we're going to have some events in the future. You, you kind of hinted at this already, but the world's going to change, isn't it? I mean, hopefully the world's going to change as well for, for the better off the back of COVID-19. A lot of people have been very nostalgic we've got no sport currently we've got nothing to look forward to particularly in terms of sport because we don't know when it's going to start again so nostalgia is the thing and I guess your events where you get famous faces and you talk back about their careers that is nostalgia so when we do get back to normal there could be quite a big appetite for that well I hope so <laughs> from, a, from a selfish point of view the events that we've run have been really enjoyable 
we tend to focus on events that feature low numbers of guests to ensure exclusivity, give everyone a chance to ask a burning question, to shake the special guest by the hand. I think lots of the events industry can be saturated with, with big lunches, lunch functions and dinner functions for 200 people. Yes, they, they hold some really good panel conversations, but no one really has the opportunity to get up close to someone they admire. So from Cal Corner Events' point of view, that's exactly what we're trying to deliver. Yeah, we've had some great names. We had David Gowrin in that incredible after summer, World Cup summer, of course, last year. No wonder there's nostalgia around the cricketing world after that, considering you go from that to no cricket. It'd be incredible if you think about it. And we, we had him talking about his final summer in the sky commentary box and his, his journey on with the Tiger Moth when he was playing for England and his relationship with Graham Gooch. And it was, re- it was a really special evening. Um, but one of the other features of, of the events is to raise awareness to health foundations within, within sports, within the rugby and cricketing facilities. Um, and we, we've been very fortunate that our speakers have opened up about the adversities that they've had to overcome. Uh, and even your David Gowers of the world who have been very sort of calm and collected on the outside, they, they still go through their through their own things, personal adversities, whether that's facing Jeff Thompson or whether it's Mark Strascothic who we had in or who who struggled to leave leave the, his local town in Somerset and his family. So, you know, everyone's got a different story and it's been really fascinating to run the event. My, my final question to you, Fabian, and thank you for joining me on the Cricket Badger podcast. It's about your dad. People will know that I grew up watching Kent cricket. Um, I'm living in Yorkshire and Yorkshire is my team, but Kent has a very special place in my heart. I spoke to you, I spoke to your dad and I spoke to Graham for my book following on in the uh, footsteps of cricketing fathers. How is your dad? Because he was basically my hero when I was a kid. Yeah, he's in good nick. He's uh, called the business cow corner events because that was his favourite area. I had a chat with him about his batting approach actually, and uh, he said that I never. I used to. It used to be a real ego hit when opposition captains put short legs in because it would just make me sleep because I had I didn't want to block. So he, he used to try and hit them out of that position. He's been uh, really good nick. He's had a couple of health scares in the last sort of five, ten years. So we need to make sure that he's behind closed doors until all of this is wrapped up. But he's, um, yeah, he's in good form and uh, uh, looking forward to uh, getting back onto the after-dinner circuit when this all finishes. But um, as, I, as, as we've spoken about already, social distancing may uh, have something to say about that. Yeah, well, as I say, he was a hero of mine when I was a kid. There was a story, I don't know if I ever told you this, where I was waiting for autographs at the St. Lawrence grounds and an elderly woman came up and tapped me on the shoulder and she said, would you do me a favour? And I said, yeah, okay, I'm not quite sure what to expect. And she said, would you mind just running up those stairs, pointing at the dressing room stairs at Canterbury, of which you've walked up and down many a time. She said, would you go up there, turn left at the top and just if, ask if you can get Chris Cowdery's short sleeve sweater. I was about 10 years old at the time, so I trotted up the stairs. Brian Lucas was having a fag at the door I said um, I've been asked by um, Mrs Cowdery if I could get uh, Chris's short sleeve sweater he said oh yeah they all say that then I said well, is, it, is it possible to get it then very meekly and <laughs> y- your dad then walked out of the showers um, just wearing a towel flung the uh, short sleeve sweater at me I trotted back down the stairs gave it uh, to his mum um, your grandma and uh, basically she thanked me very much and trotted off actually the, the closest I ever got to getting into the Kent dressing room but it's, just, it's a memory that I, I have forever I think I uh, so Brilliant. Best regards to your family, best regards to your father, who, as I say, um, holds a special place in my cricketing heart. If I can finish this interview by saying thank you very much as well for what you're doing for the NHS. As I say, my daughter is a nurse, and uh, I think the people on the front line are absolutely exceptional at this time in our lives. If you could finish off by introducing the song, and I will play it as you disappear on me. (laughs) Brilliant, thanks for having me. The song is Frontline by Julius Cowdery for the NHS, and here it is. 
We've been told to stay at home and hide away behind closed doors. Young and old, and this is one we will unite and end this war. It'll take time, together we'll climb, reach the finish line where we will find the cure. Mm -hmm. But we will fight through. Frontline, we are nothing without you. You give your lives for us, thank you We'll hold our heads up high Cause love will get us by, thank you Nothing without you. You give your lives for us, thank you. We'll hold our heads up high, as love will get us by. Thank you. Cricket Badger Podcast is brought to you in association with tvsportsblog.com. Give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. Excellent sporting content. It's well worth a look and give them a follow on Twitter at tvsportsblog. That's Frontline by Julius Cowdery, co-penned by my guest today, Fabian Cowdery. Really good tune. Really great cause, NHS charities. And whether it's Captain Tom walking around his garden, whether it's Fabian and Julius penning a charity song, all to be applauded. After I did the interview with Fabian, I looked up the Essex version. He mentions it in that interview. I will never look at Alistair Cook quite the same way again. It's a interesting interpretation, but I'll tell you what, I am not knocking them in the slightest. They are doing a terrific job at Essex. I've been looking at some of their photos and pictures and videos on Twitter, raising money for local NHS services and frontline staff. Graham Gooch, been delivering food to the hospitals as have a lot of the players. Absolutely brilliant Essex. Keep it going and it is to be applauded. They're not the only county to do it, but obviously because of the frontline connection, I looked through their Twitter feed and brilliant Essex County Cricket Club. Massive round of applause from the Cricket Badger. Anyway, on to the second part of the Cricket Badger podcast today. Back from the Edge is a book penned by Luke Sutton, the former Lancashire and Derbyshire wicketkeeper batsman. This is a really interesting Frank honest, open, a chat that you cannot afford to miss. Stay tuned. Luke Sutton on the Cricket Badger podcast. It's that Badger style. Luke, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you? 
really well. Thank you for having me on. I mean, I talked quite openly, really. I mean, I've had Graham Fowler on the podcast in the past and people, we've talked about the kind of mental health side of things. I've struggled with depression and anxiety in my time. And I found that obviously talking about it is very important. And when you get the likes of Marcus Gothic, Jonathan Trott, Graham Fowler himself, writing and talking about such subjects, it makes it a lot easier for other people to do so. And I guess in your area with alcohol addiction and the struggles that you've had, it's, it's an important message to get out there. Yeah, I think so. I think it's just really important. You know, all of these issues are, are sort of within the same territory. You know, my mental health difficulties were very much related to my addictive behavior issues and vice versa. And I think the more we talk about it, the more we understand it and are able to help other people. And I think in cricket, we've really been amazing in, in leading the way in, in opening up that discussion, starting off, like you said, with Marcus Driscoffic and, and people like Graham Fowler have, have talked very openly about it and, and, and other guys as well. I think that's amazing. I think there's a lot further we can still go with it. But I think particularly as in men, I think we struggle at times to talk about these things. We Part of it is just, you know, being able to acknowledge within ourselves that it's not a weakness. And actually, it's, it's something to be talked about and dealt with. And the more we talk about it, the more we can help each other. And, and hopefully the better everybody can be for it. And when you start the process of writing Back From The Edge, Luke, I mean, you're laying everything out there for other people to kind of dissect it and have opinions on it and what have you. I, I imagine you maybe have a few second thoughts as you go through that process, but you've got to be honest, haven't you, with that? You've got to lay all of your cards on the table. There's no point in writing a book like you have without actually putting all your demons out there. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I think also, and I, I, I did think a lot about this, but I knew that the book is really talking about a, a 25-year period. And there's lots and lots of people in my life who've been involved in parts of that, but very, very few who've been there from the start to the end. I knew when I wrote the book, it would shock a lot of people because they might have been involved in bits of it, but not all of it. So I knew that there, you know, what would come along might be opinion, like you say, people dissecting it in whichever way. But a really good friend of mine once said to me, you know, just take the power out of that. You know, the, the power is that I, you, you can have in your head that that, opinion or dissection that someone might have on you will have an effect. Whereas actually, I came to terms with the fact that I, I know my own journey. I know who I am. I know the mistakes I've made, but I'm, I'm trying to better myself in life and be a better person. Now, I, I just take the power out of that opinion. If someone wants to judge me for it, that's okay. That's their thing. I, I'm really comfortable with, with who I am and the journey I've been, been on. So funnily enough, when the book came out, I didn't worry too much about what people would think. I was just, I just know it's my truth. And I know I was doing it for a good reason. And, you know, what people make of it is up to them. I suppose if you have people that are are negative, and I don't know what kind of feedback you've had, really, if there has been any negativity, because I think most of the things I've seen have been quite positive, but they're they're not necessarily the people you want to be listening to anyway, are they? No. And uh, and actually, I I haven't had any negativity, I I have to say. As much as anything, I think even if someone... Um, you know, for some reason it stirred a negative feeling in them or emotion. At least it's being, the, the subject is being discussed, you know, at least it's out there. And I think sometimes that's as important as anything for people to talk about, whether, I don't know, someone might read it and think, well, no, sport is doing everything it possibly can at the moment to, you know, look after mental health and addiction issues. And, and I, you know, I, I resent anyone trying to imply not. And, and I, I would actually say, great, you know, at least we're having a debate about it. And I think that's a healthy thing. Let, let, let's talk about it and get it out there and more in the open. And um, that can only be a good thing for, for the overall environment that sport wants to work in. 
looking at your your journey through this, and you, you say you know it's over over a twenty five year period, but it, correct correct me if I'm wrong. But it seems to date back to an absolutely horrible incident that happened when you were well with a girlfriend, Nia Walters. Um, she died in a car crash, age twenty six, and that well that that can't have been very easy to deal with. And no, it was it was it was absolutely devastating, and um, it was just like a bomb landed in the middle of my life, really, and and every you know insecurity fragility every battle i had with mental health and my relationship with alcohol at that point i just it, everything just blew up and i i just wasn't capable of dealing with it is it, the the honest truth i just, i just i just was very conscious of people looking at me and i didn't know how to i didn't just i didn't know how to grieve naturally and it, and it left a lot of scars for sure around how i dealt with life going forward and i i talk about it as best i can in the book but the one thing i would say is is that moment and near dying had a huge impact on me no question of it but a lot of the difficulties i had been showing signs of that before near died you know i i had had difficulties with my mental health before near died it's just that one incident just amplified and accelerated everything um no question but it but i you know i don't think i ended up in the priory at the age of uh that i did because nia died i think it was all part of the journey that i ended up there i i, I take what you're saying but big big moments in your life do have a massive impact and like you say that's like a bomb going off in the middle of it you don't get too many things that are bigger than that in life does it worry you kind of looking forward that if something else dramatic happens you know how would you cope or are you in a better place now to cope mm. with something that's a really good question, actually. And someone did ask me that previously. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know. I don't, you know, until something as seismic as that happens to you, it's very, it's very difficult to predict how you'll be. I, I think I would, I would deal with it better. Um, you know, I, I think the crucial aspect is I really try and stand up and face life on life's terms now, the good and the bad, you know, and, um, and see it for what it is and not, not run away. And I think previously it was just so big for me. I just wanted to run away. I just wanted it to go away. And I think now I would deal with that differently, as painful as it would be. But the truth is, you know, I would be lying if I was able to say, yeah, I know how I would I would handle something as seismic as that now. It, I think I w- it would be different, but I don't know for sure. Like I say, I mean, I, I try and make parallels with my own life and sort of depression and anxiety and what have you. And I know that in, in my kind of journey through that, and I'm not saying I've had it any worse or, or whatever than, than anybody else out there, but yet you, you kind of, you wake up some days. I mean, before we press record, you said the same about this COVID-19 situation that you wake up some days and you think, oh, blimey. And then another day it kind of passes you by and you kind of just get on with stuff. And you, you tend to, I guess, train yourself. You kind of recognize some signs that are coming up. You, you feel maybe a bit anxious, so you know how to deal with it better. And you, you're able to cope a little bit more with stuff. And th- there must be times in, in your life now where you have down days and you kind of bounce back from that. Yes, most definitely. I think I think the, the the tough side of particularly depression and anxiety as well. And I've, I've struggled with both. But you know, depression at, at, it, at its worst, and I'm and I'm telling you something you're aware of. But for me, you know, when it's at its worst, I just want to you know hide in the corner of a room and cry, and I don't want to face anything. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to do anything. And then in in other forms, when it's it's not as crippling as that, it is just this 
sort of dark, dark cloud that sits over me for no particular reason. You know, there's nothing I can analyze what's going on in my life and, there's, and it, there's no rhyme or reason why it should be there. And I think that's why depression is so hard because as an individual, you think I, I shouldn't be feeling like this. I feel it. I, I know I have felt ashamed to feel like that at times. And th- those days still definitely come at me for sure. But I have better coping mechanisms now. And, and I, I think what you were saying is you, you become aware of it. So you kind of know, you see it for what it is and it will pass and it will go and you need to do the right things to look after yourself. But you can see what it is. Whereas when you don't know what it is, you, you think it's real. You think that's life and, and that pushes you into different ways of trying to cope with it. And, um, but it's, it's, it's so relevant, you know, and, and I think right now during COVID-19, a lot, it'll really challenge people's mental health in lots of different ways. And I, I don't underestimate how, how hard it will be for some people at the moment. I said to you prior to pressing record, but also said on the podcast before, one of the reasons I'm tuning out lots of podcasts at the moment is to try and give my day some structure and to keep myself busy and to kind of give myself some kind of focus. Because otherwise you kind of sit in a dark corner and you just let the world take over. And I think that's, a, that's the danger with something like COVID-19, particularly if you're living on your own and you feel isolated and lonely so yeah it can be a very a very testing time for people can't it this uh, this current situation that we're faced yeah exactly yeah and, and it, there's a mixture of things as you know we're facing a lot of uncertainty people are, are facing a lot of financial strain and a lot of structure has been taken out of our life and you know structure that we we're now realizing gave so much comfort you know, it's here to be dealt with. It's not, I don't underestimate it in any shape or form for people. But I think as you're doing, you're using your time wisely to, to push out podcasts, give yourself some structure, give your day a bit of meaning. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do in different ways. And um, But those challenges exist for everyone. And um, I think it, we're also allowed to have the good days and, and have the odd bad day as well. I think that's bound to happen. It's, it might sound bizarre and a bit perverse, but I, I actually take comfort in the fact that everybody's in the same boat. You know, sometimes when you mm. are suffering yourself with depression and anxiety, it can be a very lonely thing because you feel like you're the only person going through it. I can remember walking through town and feeling quite paranoid. I've had experiences where I've been sat in a library trying to write a book and all of a sudden covered in sweat because kind of an anxiety attack's coming on. But at the moment with this COVID-19, everybody's in the same boat and there's almost like a, a sense of comfort in collective misery. Does that sound weird? <laughs> yeah, I think collective misery or, or just a collective struggle, isn't it? I think, and it's, it's also, I, I would add to that, it's, it's collectively something no one's ever dealt with. You know, none, none of us have the exact answers, do we? So I, I just, I think it's a, it's a time when we know we're all in it together, but we're also all in together, not really knowing the best way to handle all of this. And I think there is a comfort in that because Sometimes when you're when you're feeling alone and isolated, if you think someone else has got all the answers and you don't have them, that that makes you feel even more isolated. And I don't think we're there. No, I don't think anyone's got the perfect answer of how to deal with COVID right now. We're just all just doing our best. Looking at your book, I've seen you you say that kind of your lowest point was the 35th birthday celebrations where you went on a bit of a bender and you ended up letting your kids down. You ended up sitting on the kitchen floor drunk at uh, 8.30 in the morning and that was kind of a real, not necessarily, is is wake up call the right term for it? Is that when it really hit you that you needed to do something about it? Well, no, no, if I'm perfectly honest. I mean, I didn't rescue myself. I I couldn't give myself that much credit. You know, that was right at the end when that happened and, you know, it was a kind of 10-day period and eventually led to, you know, my daughter needed to go to hospital and my then wife said, you you know, you can't come and and I said, why? And she said, because you're drunk. I have to live with that. And uh, it was a, 
a massive moment in the, the spiral down that I was going in. But my answer to it at the time was to just sit on the kitchen floor and carry on drinking. And then I wandered off to the pub and carried on drinking at the pub. I didn't go, crikey, I need to turn myself around here. I was lost. I was absolutely broken. And actually friends rescued me. And, and then, you know, my family came and, and got me into the Priory. And I, and I think the lowest moment actually was when I was in the Priory and I was sober and I thought about what had happened. And I realized what had happened, you know, when it, when it actually happened, I was drunk. So it was a bit of a blur, but it was just such a massive reflection of where I've got myself today. Nothing means more to me than being a father on, you know, my, my children are the most precious things on the earth to me. And, and to think that that was me then, you know, eight, eight and a half years ago, still blows my mind now. And it was Glenn Chappell's wife, wasn't it, that booked you into the Priory? Glenn Chappell, probably the, the, the greatest county cricketer that never played for England. Yeah, he, he played one one day internationally. He'd be quick to, uh, I think he played against Ireland. He should have um, played test cricket, I, though, shouldn't he? No, I mean, I, 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 was, I think I was asked the other day on Twitter, he should have played 80 test matches for England. I, he was a phenomenal cricketer, brilliant bowler, but absolutely brilliant bowler. I love keeping wicket to him. And, I, you know, at Lancashire, I kept to some good bowlers so I, I could compare him to, to others, and he's right up there. They, uh, Glenn and his wife, Terry, have always been really good friends to me and uh, lived just around the corner from where I was living at the time. And, yeah, I think it had been that period of time had been really sort of escalating over a 10, 10 day, two-week period. And what I didn't realise was that that group of friends was sort of getting more and more concerned about me. I just wasn't able to really appreciate that at the time. And on that particular day, that Friday, they, I guess I'd, I'd you know, made enough alarms go off for them all that they thought, right, we need to do something about this. And um, yeah, Kerry called the Priory and booked an appointment. Uh, and then they sort of facilitated calling my mum and dad who came up and the wheels were in motion that, yeah, the following day on the Saturday I went in. You, you say the friends were getting more concerned with you. I mean, my, my experience of talking to people with addiction and addictive personalities in the past has been that they almost live in denial. Um, they think they're, they're okay or they reckon, even if they recognise there's an issue, they try and hide it and mask it and lie to friends and they, they kind of try and get through life by pretending everything's okay even though they probably realise it's not. Was that something that was the case with you, that friends were getting more concerned but you were kind of maybe batting them away a little bit? Yes, yeah, most definitely. And I think people with, you know, addictive behavioural problems are also master survivors because you put yourself in so many sticky positions that you, you get really used to ha talking your way out of it and you become really good at talking your way out of it because you get enough chances to give it a go. And I think for me, it was it was just a case of, I just normalised and minimised everything, you know, at any time that, you know, I got, I thought, oh, golly, I'm, I'm going to get into strife here. I'd minimise it in some way or, or, you know, change it or I'd blame someone else. I mean, that's the one thing for me. When I got to the Priory, I had a long list of reasons why I was behaving the way they were. And, and I me wasn't on that list it was everyone else's fault and uh, what I realized during my time there the problem wasn't anyone else the problem was me and really that's when I started to, to really turn things around I know you through cricket I, I've met you a couple of times I think in Barbados when you were out there with Derbyshire I think you were captain at the time of, of Derbyshire yeah when you were kind of having these struggles with addiction and alcohol was that a constant throughout that period or were there periods where it was bad and then other periods where you kind of went without a drink for months on end or was it was it all always there no it was I mean I was the sort of you know over my adult life I was the type of uh, what you'd call a binge drinker I guess and I, I would have periods where I wouldn't drink at all 
it was uh, the way the best way for me to describe it though but the only way i found that manageable was knowing that there was a window coming up that i could drink in and that when i get to that window i'd go absolutely crazy and so the constant was always this kind of mechanism around how i drank it was you know when i did it was it was completely you know wheels fell off there was no kind of uh, you know, there was nothing particularly genteel about it. It was it was pretty full on. And then I'd, I'd drag myself back out of it, stay, stay off it and train hard and play hard. And then when I knew there was another window coming again, it, I would go massive. But but really what happened over that, that 2011, slowly over the year, was it all just bunched itself together. You know, my binges got closer together. They got more extreme. And so this sort of method that I'd found to everything was just basically falling apart. There were certainly periods of time where I didn't drink. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like a twenty four seven thing until I got to the last two weeks before I went into the priory, where it felt like I was clinging on, and then I just couldn't cling on any longer, and I let go. But you know, and I dropped to the bottom. So when when I would have seen you in Barbados, and you you were captain of Derbyshire, and Obviously, everybody's in pre-season training. Everybody's trying to get ready for the for the summer ahead. Would that be a, a kind of a couple of weeks where you wouldn't touch a drop? I mean, on on pre-season trips, um, I don't think I'm giving out away too many secrets here. You tend to you work hard, you practice hard, you you really go for it, and you get ready for the summer ahead. And usually, at the end of one of those trips, there's a little bit of a party, I guess, for one of a better phrase. Where you have a bit of a finds night, you have a, a couple of drinks before you fly yeah. home. That, that have been something that you'd have seen as a chance to have a drink at, or in in pre-season, would you have steered clear of that? No, that was very, that was very much like my preseason, but it just you know we'd often yeah if I get I can't remember that exact preseason trip, but that was that was very much kind of you know what you've just described is very normal for the way I went about it. It was just that for instance, say on a preseason we had a day off, and so we had a few bit you know the intention would be to have a few beers the night before, have a day off, and then be back on training or playing the, the day after. Totally normal. My problem would be that I would go out for drinks on that night, the, you know, the night before the day off, and, and it would become so big and so massive that it, it would just wipe me out for the day off and then going into the next day and then I'd have to pull it back from there and I'd beat myself up thinking why can't I just hold this together a bit better you know and just not write myself completely off and I just did it so many times. It, it was because I couldn't, I just didn't have a control of what I was doing. So it, it wasn't like my behavior was vastly different. To, and I think, you know, I put, I put this in the book, you know, a lot of the stuff that I describe, a lot of people relate to who don't end up having the problems that I have. You know, lots of people go to the pub on a Friday and Saturday night and unwind from the week and have a big session in the pub for sure. And, and they don't end, maybe end up in the problems that, that I did. But for me, it was just because everything got so extreme. You know, everything, there was no balance to it at all. It was all really, really out of balance. And that's and I could just never wrestle it back. It was, it just became, it just got worse and worse. As you know, on the at cricket underscore badger Twitter feed, we've been looking for the hashtag goat cricketer, the greatest test match cricketer of all time. We've done the England vote. Congratulations to Sir Ian Botham. We've done the India vote. Congratulations to the little master, Sachin Tendulkar. And we're now turning our attention to the West Indies. Who is the greatest test player of all time to wear the maroon cap? Follow the Cricket Badger on Twitter at cricket underscore badger. Have your say, discuss the issues 
and have your vote as we find who is the greatest West Indian Test cricketer of all time. The top four in each of the votes will also go through to the final, the world's greatest ever Test match cricketer. So second, third and fourth place matter too. Who is the greatest West Indian Test cricketer of all time? Hashtag Goat Cricketer on Twitter. Follow at Cricket underscore Badger to have your say and have your vote. Obviously, it's had a, a big impact on your, your private life. In terms of your cricket career, would you have been a better player? Would you have achieved more without alcohol? It's a good question. I don't, I don't think so. But I know, for instance, that, you know, I finished playing at 35. Physically, I was capable of playing longer for sure. Was I able to mentally? No. You know, that was the end of it for me. And I had just, just through my lifestyle, the way I was, you know, I pushed myself in all sorts of different ways, you know, both on the field and training and the way I played and also off the field in binging and, you know, that my mental health battles and, and that whole kind of washing machine of it all going together. By the time I, I was, you know, I finished playing, I just, I was absolutely burnt out. And I remember at that period of time, for instance, Craig White, I mean, he's a bit older than me, but he, he went on to play till he was 40, I think. And like Glenn Chappell played till he was 42, maybe. I, I can't remember. But for me, you know, I just, I was absolutely wiped out. And I think, I do think that was just a, a result of my overall way of approaching life. It was just at 300 miles an hour, both in working and playing. And it just wasn't, it wasn't manageable. And in the end, I just burnt myself out completely. As I say, I mean, I, I've, I wouldn't say I, I've really met you properly. I've, I've kind of said hello to you passing you in a hotel in Barbados, and that's pretty much the extent of our, our relationship. But I, I've always seen you as, I mean, my, my outside perception of you would be decent-looking bloke, obviously quite fit, good at cricket. I'm envious of all of that. Um, you've, you've got pretty much everything sussed. I, I, I would imagine that that is a lot of people's outside perception of somebody like yourself, and only you inside your own head know what's going on. Exactly, and 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 I think that that sort of perception is subjective for everyone, isn't it? There's there's lots of people that we look at in life and think that they they've got everything sussed or whatever it might be. And I think I really wanted everyone to think I had it sussed. You know, I really I think I worked hard to make sure that everyone thought I had it sussed. But deep down, I didn't. You know, I had my own battles, I had my own insecurities, and you know, I. It's also, you know, that the, the, that sort of phrase that gets pushed around a little bit. But you know, you don't know what battles people are, are fighting inside, and that was very much me, you know. And it was just, I guess, I was working full time to make sure that everyone thought I had everything sus. But deep down, I knew I had some demons, and, and I had some really big internal battles going on. And you know, I, I kept the pretense up for as long as I could. And then finally, I, I just I couldn't keep it up, and I had to get honest, and and that's really where I was able to start getting, you know, turning my life around. You, you say that. I mean, I, I would draw parallels with my own life a little bit alongside that. And if you look at people, the kind of well-known people that have come out about depression and anxiety within cricket, the Robin Smiths, the Graham Fowlers, Marcus Triscothic, they're all people who from, from outside, you'd think, well, they've got everything sewn up. They're all quite sociable. They're all quite likable people. They're all quite laid back. They look as if they've got life 
absolutely in the palm of their hands. But it's, it's often those kind of guys that are actually suffering more than maybe people who you might imagine have, have issues. Yeah, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I know all three of the guys you just mentioned and I played junior cricket with Marcus Ruskovic and we played at the same club and, you know, I, I never saw that coming with him. You know, I just saw this super talented um, guy absolutely loves cricket more than anyone loves anything. And yeah, you just, you don't know, you don't know what's going on underneath. And I think that's why it's, it's so important not to kind of, you know, when we see someone behaving in a certain way or acting out in a certain way, we, we just all need to take a breath and just kind of go, okay, where, where is this person at here? Um, because we, certainly before COVID, we, I felt like society had just got in a place where we were just jumping down each other's throats so far. And I feel like, you know, if a lesson can be learned in, in this time, is, is sometimes we just need to take a breath and, and consider where someone might be at in their own life. The worry with that with me, Luke, is that just before COVID came along, which seems like it's lasted for, for, for years, but it's actually only been a few weeks, when yeah, the sad death of Caroline Flack with her, her suicide, and there was all the kind of hashtag be nice on Twitter, and that all lasted for about a week, and then everybody just got back to doing what they're going to do. And I, I really hope after coronavirus that people do actually take a proper step back and think about things. I, I'm with you. I, I, I have the same fear. I, you know, I hope is rather than, you know, I know. I agree with you. And uh, I just, I, I sort of go back to the thing of, you know, uh, when I get in a, a sort of flap in my own head of going, you know, I wish society was a bit kinder at the moment. I think, well, what can I do? I can just live a life and be hopefully a beacon to, you know, for my children and people around me and, you know, my partner that this is the way I think life should be lived. And then whatever happens in society happens. But, yeah, I think COVID will have stopped everyone, that's for sure, and made everyone assess everything. And I, I really, really hope that we come back a better society. But I, I'm with you. It's, it's hope um, rather than anything more, you know, stronger than that. Finish the chat about this by taking you back to that first day when you found yourself in the Priory and you were sat there mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a room. Was Is that the first time that you've actually sat there sober thinking, flipping egg? Where am I in this life? I, I need to sort something out. Was that the first time you really had time to actually reflect and think, blimey, where am I? Um, yeah, yes. Uh, I, I mean, I had this sort of phrase in my head that was I was sat there going, where did this start and where did this finish to, for me to end up here? You know, I, I can I can write about it in the book, but that's because it happened, you know, eight years ago and I've had a long time to process it and understand it and put it all together. But right then and there, I was just, you know... I was in total, I was just completely broken, shocked, upset, devastated. I was exhausted. And I just thought, how is it, where did it start and finish for me to end up in the Priory? You know, I never, ever thought this would happen. I never thought this is what was going to happen. And I guess that was kind of that, you know, like you say, that moment where I was like, it's come to this. This is it. And there was a bit of me. And I, I, I remember this from... Even at the start of, of coming in, you know, sort of in the car on the way there and then you know, going through the whole process, there was this bit in me going, thank God I can stop pretending. Thank God, you know, the, the game is up. I had in my head, the game is up now. You can stop pretending because I've been pretending for so long that everything was okay and, and everything wasn't okay. And it was almost like the Priory now gave me permission to let go of that. And there was a bit of relief about it. Was there also a little bit of you that was actually thinking, get me out of this car, I can run away from this, I'm going to be okay, I can sort myself out? <laughs> uh, no, no, I mean, I, I have lots of other people I was in the priory with had those sorts of feelings. I knew one or two people who did run away. But no, I didn't. I actually, I, I felt so desperate on that Saturday morning, I did want to go in. 
I just, I needed a break. I needed to get away from life. There was times when I was in there where, you know, I just, I guess I was just upset. Didn't think I was in the right place. You know, I didn't want to face up to everything where, you know, I don't know if I thought really about running away, but, uh, you know, if someone would give me the option, I might have, might have taken it. But no, to start with, I, I really wanted to get in there. I, I willingly checked in. Tell me about the man you refer to in the book as Jonathan. Yeah, J- Jonathan, I mean, his, his story lives with me very, very often. Um, but in, in the last week I was in the Priory, you know, people sort of came in, came and went at times. And uh, but it, the, the, the residential area is not very big at the Priory. I, I don't know how many beds, but it's not that big. So you would notice someone new coming in. But sometimes they they would not leave their room for a few days um, whilst they were kind of getting themselves together in order to to be able to join in with group sessions and things like that. And in my last week, this guy came in and we never saw him other than at night time, he would wander out, go outside for a cigarette. And he, he basically just looked like a tramp. That, that, that's the best way to describe him. You know, in, in a real stereotypical way, he looked like a tramp. He walked incredibly slowly. It was painful to watch him walk. And he never went anywhere near anyone. He never talked to anyone. He'd just go outside, have a cigarette, and then wander back to his room. I never saw him in the meal, uh, you know, in the dining room. I he never came to group sessions. I didn't see him at all. The one thing about him is he had this, this big shiny watch on, which kind of didn't fit the look, you know, he was this tramp and then he had a quite obviously quite an expensive watch on. And then on my last day, and not only on my last day, on my very last session in the Priory, in which I was basically doing my you, you have to discuss, you know, what your plan is when you leave, you know, what 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 you've got in place, you know, to look after yourself and all those sorts of things. Jonathan came to join us for this last session. So my last one was his first one. And I've never ever seen anyone look so physically poorly and be alive. It, it was shocking, like breathtaking. He, he was, you know, he had terrible jaundice. He looked awful. He, his his eyes just looked just dead. He, he he was absolutely broken. And he was invited to join in with the the group. And the, the therapist knew, knew him. He had obviously been into the priory previously, and she she asked him to to share what had happened to him. Um, and he, he was a lawyer um, and quite a successful one. Um, but he had problems with alcohol, very severe problems. And he was utterly convinced that he could control it. He had these various methods that he, he had basically put into place and, and obviously hadn't been able to keep them. And, and effectively, he'd been living on the streets for the, the last period of time. And now he was in the Priory. And what shocked me at the time was in one place I had visually I'd never seen anyone look so poorly and be alive and then what would come out of his mouth was just such a strong level of denial he just couldn't accept where he'd got to you know he felt like he had control over it all and I I pleaded with him at the time you know I I said to him look you know can you see yourself why don't you give this a go why don't you just look at a different way he just looked through me you know he didn't he just didn't couldn't really acknowledge me and explained that he had two sons and this was in November and he wanted to be he wanted to be a good dad to his sons and um, he you know, he knew his wife didn't want to have anything to do with him but he, he wanted to kind of have the best relationship with her he could and, and and mainly he wanted to be there for his sons and that was it I left and I you know I kind of wondered what happened to him and then tragically I found out six weeks later that he had, he'd been he basically drunk himself to death in a hotel room in Manchester and um, and he wasn't there for his sons anymore and it was just 
uh, you know, utterly heartbreaking. That and, and you know, if anyone wants to kind of know the power of, of addictions, you know, that was a classic case in point. And it was my last session and his first session. And for whatever reason, the universe kind of made our paths cross at that point. But it, it had a really profound effect on me. As a last session, I guess that is a, a pretty decent full stop to your, your stay in the Priory. It's a yeah. I, I mentioned wake up call before, but I guess if you're going to leave the Priory with any message, that was it, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, absolutely, and um, and I kind of you know, and when I left the priory, I, I didn't. Like, that's when the work began for me. You know, it gave me an opportunity to turn my life around, but I had a, an awful lot to you know, the kind of car crash of what I'd left behind. I had to go back and face. I had to learn to live a different way that didn't you know need this kind of explosion of a binge at some point. And I just had to completely learn to live differently. I felt, I guess, that experience that only heightened it for me. I was determined to do it. And some days I felt like I was treading in treacle and going nowhere, but I was trying my best. And other days I felt like I was jumping over mountains. But the important thing, I was always trying to kind of move forward and I was committed to trying to change my life at that point. Luke, I've read a, a really good uh, inter- interview that you did with Nick Holt, I think, in The Telegraph, where it's uh, Luke yeah. Sutton exclusive interview, a warning to players and clubs. Professional sport is a breeding ground for addiction. I, I can see exactly where you're coming from with that one. I mean, I've spoken to a, a lot of people on this podcast and obviously in, in, in my working life and about struggles with retirement probably more than anything because you go from a dressing room I mean obviously you were having your struggles whilst a player but when you actually cut off from that bubble and you go into kind of the wider world does it get worse people really do struggle with kind of retiring from professional sport but if you've got that addictive personality and already got some underlying problems there then I can only assume that 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 manifests itself and magnifies itself yeah but I so my my point would be to say that I think professional sports people in an, have all got addictive personalities that they are addicted to their profession they're addicted to you know to, to be able to reach that level they will have been utterly obsessed with what they're doing you know they will have they will have the, the capability to hyper focus on something they will be pushing themselves you, you know someone doesn't get to you know playing professionally without you know, have it being oh, obviously having some talent, but but more than anything, having this mindset around uh, around surviving and and thriving and competing, and a lot of those personality traits are ones that are quite susceptible to to running into addiction problems. So you have that mindset, and then you have this this other side in, in professional sport where you're kind of you judge yourself, or you can. I certainly got caught into the trap of, of judging yourself by winning and losing. You know, if you do it, if you're winning or you're playing well, you're, you're good. You're good in the world. If you're not, you're not good in the world. And, and it really being very binary around outcomes and results. So you take that person and then you move them into retirement, and and we wonder why we've got problems. You know, <laughs> you're effectively pushing someone out there into the big wide world who's got an addictive personality but no longer has that thought to perform in and and do well in. Uh, They don't have the structure around them anymore, around training, competition, travel, that's gone. And they're also a kind of outcome-based person where they base their or they they define their their happiness within the world around this kind of binary winning and losing. And, And now they're in the big wide world where it's not as clear as that. And we wonder why so many guys have troubles. And and I think that's where we're not fast enough at the moment. You know, we we, let, we see lots of signs during a sporting career and we don't really do anything because they're playing well, the team are playing well, you know, it's all good and, you know, everyone's happy. And then they wander off into retirement and we wonder what happened. 
And I think we've got to just do a little bit better than that in sports, to be perfectly honest. Is it down to teammates and friends more than the actual person themselves? Because as we've discussed, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not always the person that recognises the, the problem in themselves. The person is the master concealer, the person that tries to hide it and pretend everything's normal. It's almost up to the kind of the rest of the cricket team, isn't it? To actually say, well, Fred over there, he's, he's really struggling with this. We need to mm-hmm. kind of round up and do something about this. Kind of, I guess, in an American term, intervention is the, is the word. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly. You know, there's a sort of phrase that's often used in, you know, mental health campaigns, it's good to talk. And it, it, it absolutely is good to talk. And that's why it's important that we're, we're having this discussion. But I think when you're in the depths of those problems, the last thing you want to do is talk. You know, I definitely didn't want to. I didn't want to. I, it wasn't about me being honest with someone else. I didn't want to be honest with myself. It's really, really hard to talk. So uh, and that's why I hope for a kind of society where we look out for each other a little bit more. And rather than kind of laughing along at someone's extreme behavior, and sometimes in teams it can happen around, you know, I, I got a guy who's, you know, spent the last five days straight every afternoon in the bookies. Rather than kind of laughing about it and thinking, you know, I just love the best. I actually think, well, do you know what? We might just need to keep an eye on him here because this is escalating into a place. It's not just boys being boys. This is something else. Or, you know, it can be behavior around drinking or women or wh- whatever it might be. The temptation is always to kind of laugh along with it and think it, it's boys being boys. And I think in those team environments, it's not just teammates, it's team management. I think you've really got to keep a close eye on that and not just judge everything by what's going on on the field because you've already mentioned some names. You know, you can be highly successful on the field and yet off the field, you know, your life can be falling apart so we just have to have a better look at it I could actually talk to you all day on this because I think it's an interesting subject it's a fascinating subject I think your story is really interesting as well before we finish the podcast let's just move into current times you're now a sports agent aren't you you're looking after some some very big names in the world of sport how are you finding that and how did you get into that I, I I had a business which um, already operated in sport but mainly in coaching and events and then in retirement and in and in during my recovery time, I, I started to manage people um, and I started with Jimmy Anderson. So I managed you know, for about eight years and um, and then that's kind of spread out across not just cricket, but, you know, lots of other different sports and broadcasters. And it's been, I've, I've absolutely loved, I love doing what I'm doing. It, it can be, you know, because of my own journey, I, I guess I feel I've got something to offer to a lot of young sports people around, you know, being able to deal with the way that, that modern day sport is and modern day life is for that matter but I love it and I get to kind of especially in cricket terms now you know I've, I've managed kind of Jimmy Anderson and Matt Fryer and James Taylor and, and now I'm, I'm managing Don Best and Saqib Mahmood and Tom Moore's kind of a new generation coming through I get to live my cricket life through them and they are far better than I ever was so you know that's, that's, that's it's really enjoyable and finally Luke I mean, we, we can't get more than 15 minutes through a, a podcast without mentioning that dreaded C word, but coronavirus must have had a massive impact on your own business with sport not being played, events not happening. What are you doing with yourself? It ha- well, it has had a huge impact. I mean, the, the, the management side of things has been difficult, but not too much. Everything, you know, everything has slowed down and paused, but, you know, it's okay. On the event side of our business and the coaching side, you know, everything's just been cancelled, basically. And uh, it's, it's been really, really difficult. And, you know, there was there were times when 
uh, in those sort of first three or four days where it, it seemed to be like we were talking about it and then suddenly 72 hours later it was it becomes something completely much much bigger I did find it quite overwhelming at that point I, I really recognize that because I, I used to go into Leeds a lot we used to do off-tube commentary on football cricket tennis whatever and there was one weekend mm-hmm. where we were all stood there saying oh flipping heck if coronavirus strikes there might be a few football matches cancelled that's going to affect us and then the week later there wasn't any football at all and basically we had no work it just it really did creep upon us very quickly didn't it, it it did, yeah. And, and I found that period quite overwhelming. But I think over the time, my business will change and adapt and will, will come through it. And I think there will be some positive things that come through it. But there's no question that it's been extremely difficult. I think the hardest thing is it's just it's nothing that we could have ever planned for. You know, you just don't... I, I, it's be really interesting to see how we go in business now afterwards because this has happened for us. I think we might plan for it. But until it had ever happened, it just we just never thought that a pandemic would hit and wipe out as much business as it's done but you know there's people business is important and money, financial security for people is, is important no question and it creates a lot of stress for people but you know I, I do remind myself that people losing their lives and, and that's that's obviously far more important absolutely absolutely totally agree with that I, I, I couldn't believe that Wimbledon had a pandemic insurance who'd ever heard of a pandemic Genius. insurance yeah absolutely Genius. I know I mean whoever whoever and then you imagine trying to get that through the committee you know but I think they took it out sort of 14, 15 years ago, they would have, you know, been laughed at. But whoever did that is now very, very chuffed with themselves. I would imagine the person at the insurance company has been sacked as well. Yeah, it's quite a big payout. Luke Sutton, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the Cricket Budget Podcast this edition. A really fascinating tale. Back from the Edge by Luke Sutton is your book out there. How do people get it? Amazon is the easiest way. There are a number of other ways, but I would say your best bet is Amazon. They they tend to be the most efficient. Well, get yourself on Amazon there, listeners, and uh, get a copy. Back from the Edge by Luke Sutton. Luke, thank you for joining me on the Cricket Budget Podcast. Wish you every health, happiness, and success in the future. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's that Badger style. There you go then. That's another edition in the bag. Cricket Badger podcast number 126. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. Please like, subscribe, leave nice comments about the Cricket Badger podcast on whatever platform it is that you listen to it on. Thank you to tvsportsblog.com for sponsoring the podcast. Thank you to Fabian. Thank you to Luke for being my guests on today's edition. And thank you to you for listening. It's keeping me sane. As I mentioned a few times in this podcast, doing these podcasts, chatting to people about cricket, it's the only sense of normality I have in my life at the moment. I'm sure many of you are in the same boat. I'm trying to give myself a bit of structure. I'm trying to churn out something as well to keep you entertained as you go through lockdown and you go through COVID-19. And together, we will come out the other side. And I hope very, very soon I can take this new kit that I have Hopefully you've noticed the difference in audio quality and I can actually go around the country. I can sit down face to face within two meters of people and interview them properly. But until then, it will be over WhatsApp, it'll be over Skype, it'll be over telephone connections. But hopefully you're enjoying the Cricket Badger podcast that I'm sticking out there. Thank you everybody for listening. I've been James and I will see you next time on the Cricket Badger podcast. Then my guest will be... Nottinghamshire left armer Harry Gurney. He has controversial opinions on a few things about the future of cricket. I thought I was going to fall out with him to see whether I do or not. Tune in next time. I'll see you then. Sports 
Social Podcast Network.